Hello and welcome to episode 121 of The World According to Gar. I've used the word context before, I think, on this podcast, but I I think it, it bears repeating. The idea that things can only be understood if you have enough context, truly understood, if you have enough context, is important, I believe, to coaching and teaching. Um... And and maybe most especially to coaching because so many things that people take, especially from the internet or from, you know, uh, uh, some sort of uh, tutorial that they watched or, you know, they went to some, I don't know, uh, there was a seminar about something and they took one little piece of it. Quite often what's missing is context and context is what makes the thing itself make sense. So to give you an, uh, to give you a little idea here, I had an MRI yesterday. And I, I had an MRI, I've had one before, but I didn't really think about what it actually was or how it worked before I went in there. But once I was in it, I was like, what the fuck is happening here? I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, but if you have, you know that an MRI is incredibly noisy, but the noises are not the same. The, the MRI will start off going, and they'll go, bong, 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 and they'll go, bing. Like the, the noises change all the time and they're not for the same length of time. And it's incredibly distracting. It's a very, very uncomfortable thing. And then of course they put you inside a metal tube to do this. And if you're claustrophobic at all, which I am, and you're wearing a mask, it's really, really not comfortable at all. In fact, my son Griffin, who's had every procedure known to man, basically because of all the problems he's had along the, along the road to uh, recovery from Crohn's disease, he, he says that an MRI is the thing he hates most. And he's had lots of other procedures. So I, I started looking at what exactly is an MRI and what does MRI stand for? Well, it stands for magnetic resonance imaging. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, does anybody even know what the word resonance really means? In, in terms of what it means in terms of an MRI, it means this, the reinforcement or prolongation of a sound or radio wave in this case by reflection from a surface. Well, that doesn't sound very useful or specific until you understand what is actually happening in an MRI. In an MRI, you're surrounded by a magnetic field and that magnetic field, it exists for a purpose. The purpose is to align the, the protons inside the nucleus of the hydrogen atoms in your body. Okay. So if you imagine each, each hydrogen atom in your body, because we're, we're made so much of water, there's tons of hydrogen inside us, right? Like we're talking, when you look at the numbers, it's something, you know, it's like 4.2 times 10 to the 27th number of hydrogen atoms inside our body, right? We're essentially made up of four or five different things. And one of the things we're made up mostly is of hydrogen, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, et cetera. Right? So you've tons and tons and tons of hydrogen atoms. And because you only have one proton, they're easy to deal with. Now, each one of those hydrogen atoms, if you think of it, it's like a little planet earth. Okay. The earth spins on its axis. And so do these, right? So do these hydrogen atoms and they're, they have a positive and negative at each end. In other words, there's a North and South pole. Okay. But all of these atoms in your body, all these hydrogen atoms, they just rotate randomly, right? They're not aligned with anything else. But when you get an MRI and turn it on, they go, and they all point in the same direction. They all line up. Then when you shoot a radio wave, a sound wave at them, it bounces off and comes out in a 
in a readable pattern. It, it essentially resonates, right? That radio wave. And so what they do is they put you in, they turn on the magnets, right? That's what you hear in the sound. And then they shoot radio waves. And then they change, they incrementally change the strength of the magnetic field and shoot other radio waves incrementally change it, shoot, and in doing so, they build up a picture of all these reflections. It's sort of, in one sense, like like sonar, like a, a bat sending out signals, you know, in the dark, and they're bouncing off and coming back, and he paints a picture for himself of what the inside of the cave looks like. Well, it's, it's sort of the same thing. Not exactly, obviously, but the same kind of idea that you're getting, that you're getting a signal that's bouncing off a surface and coming back out. And... Here's the other crazy thing is when you turn the magnet off and on, what happens is all those hydrogen atoms go back to where they were before, but they stop spinning when you put the magnetic field in. So when you turn the magnetic field off, how long it takes for them to start spinning again and how long it takes for them to unalign from their, their, the magnetic field are two different things that are measurable by a computer. So you can measure the response of different kinds of tissue. And in so doing with no danger to the person and nothing that can hurt you in any way, shape or form. This isn't like you're getting radiation or anything. An MRI can't damage you in any way. All it's doing is momentarily changing the direction that things are pointing. But even so, it makes no difference to your body. And so it's a miraculous kind of thing. But it makes a lot more sense to me to be in there and it's making all these noises randomly. But what it is, is the magnet switching on and off and coming back on at slightly different frequencies, er, slightly different strengths, if you will. And then radio pulses going in at different frequencies as well. And then the off and on, off and on, off and on. And everything's slightly different each time to get this contrast in the resonance. So once... I got out of the MRI and came home and did a little bit of research. The whole thing made a lot more sense to me. Do you understand? So to get an MRI and everybody can get an MRI and and not have to know anything about it helps the doctor to get a picture of what's inside your body in a non-invasive way. It's fucking miraculous. It's fucking amazing. People are so fucking smart. It just kills me sometimes. But if you have no idea what's happening, then the whole thing means less. To truly understand it, you need a little bit of context. You need to understand exactly what's happening. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't work if you don't understand it. But this is the thing. If you do understand it, you can understand why, for instance, you can't move while you're in an MRI, right? If you move, it disturbs the picture and things don't, right? You don't get that clean image that you're supposed to be getting. Now I understand why you have to stay perfectly still. Now I understand why it's so noisy. Now I understand why it's so uncomfortable and it has to be. But it's, it's something that, that the context helped me and it makes me feel better about getting one and about how the whole process works. Well, that's just an example, right? So I want to talk about two things that have absolutely nothing to do with track and field. So fuck off. Golf and writing. Okay. So first thing is I'm trying to get better at golf just as a thing. Just because I'm over 60 years old, there aren't a hell of a lot of things you can get better at, right? So I'm trying to get better at golf as a physical thing, because as you get older, you, you get less coordinated, 
You, you lose your strength and power, especially power, especially explosiveness of any sort. And you become stiff, right? Bending over to catch a, a football is harder for me than it ever was, right? Uh, I, I feel less confident about things like jumping from something that's a couple of feet high down onto the ground even, <laughs> right? You lose that as you get older. But here's a game, and I, I would argue with people that golf isn't really a sport. Uh, here's a game that you can that you can play that you can get better at after the age of 60. And it doesn't seem possible unless you were really shitty before you were 60 like I was, but here it is. So here's the thing. Golf is all about feel and all about skill. You look at the professional golfers in the world, you know, some of them are physical specimens, but very few of them are people that you would see in an airport and go, that guy's a professional athlete. Half of them are, you'd see that guy and say, that's a professional accountant or a middle-aged housewife or whatever, right? There's guys with bodies like bent forks. There's tiny, skinny little guys. There's people who are pudgy. There's all sorts of different bodies in professional golf. And that is not a disqualifying thing because it's a pure skill event. And like all pure skill events, that means it takes a lot of time and a lot of repetition golf, you're, you're not hitting the same shot every time people think you are, but you're not, uh, you know, let's say you tee it up and you're hitting your driver. Well, that's fine. But professionals, especially they want to hit their driver so that the ball moves from left to right or right to left, or that they hit a low one or that they hit a high one. They want something that's downhill and they want it to roll or it's, you know, they, they want it to stay where it, where it lands and not roll through the, through the fairway. There's all sorts of other things going on. So they don't hit the ball the same way every time, but also you have a variety of clubs, right? And some people carry more clubs in their bag than they should, but you have a variety of different clubs and you hit them all in a slightly different way. More, uh, perhaps importantly, in terms of the context of all this is that if you've been online and looked at anything to do with golf, you'd just be absolutely appalled as I am at the sheer volume of bullshit that's out there. It's unbefucking leaveable how many people are trying to make a buck off telling you they can fix your golf swing. It's truly amazing. The number of, of physical devices things that, that you can wear, things that you can use to help your swing, things that you can hold, things that you can adjust with, uh, clubs, you know, that are, that are rubbery. And, and if you don't swing properly, they break, right? The things that keep your arms the pinned to the side of your body, things that position your body. I mean, I talked about this when Damien and I went out to the, to the golf thing here in London, we, we there's a golf robot they attach the club to, to this robot and you hold on to the club and it swings it for you. And it makes, if you, if you hold on to the club, it makes you go through the proper motion. And then of course, if you watch anybody play golf, everybody swings a little bit differently. Anyway, there's, there's all these charlatans on the internet, but there's also all sorts of people who are saying, this is the key. This is the key. This is the key. How do you know who to trust? And which one of those things is really the key, right? There's literally an avalanche of information that there's an overwhelming tsunami of data that makes it almost impossible to filter out the bullshit, which is the whole problem with the internet in the first place. But if you watch people who are good at it and you start looking at some of the things that are happening and you have a little bit of time, and I'm by no means an avid golfer. I'm talking about I'm golfing once a week and it's the most I've ever golfed in my life. 
And I've gone and hit golf balls. And we've been hitting golf balls at practice, right? Damien and Nate and Dennis and I, once a week, we hit, uh, you know, a hundred wedges each as part of our warm up. At least we're calling it that <laughs> for, for throwing discus or for pole vaulting. Cause those things are very much like golfing. So, so we, we hit balls and it's made a huge difference. Why? Because repetition is key to learning new skills, but it's also key to reinforcing something that's purely about feel. So I, I've noticed something that's happening and it's something that, that I see happening with athletes, but they don't understand it. And what's happening is I'm getting better, but my score isn't. And it's a really hard thing when you're young and it's a really hard thing when you're a good athlete to be getting better at something and not see it reflected in the score. And this is the patience that I've talked about several times. And this is, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the context of the decathlon. Okay. I'm talking about golf. Yes. But what happens in golf is as you get better, you start to hit more good shots, but it doesn't take many bad shots to ruin a round of golf. So what happens is as you get better, every once in a while, you start to hit a perfect shot and you're like, okay, that works. And of course, this is why people keep playing golf because every round they hit at least one good shot, right? But you hit a good shot. Okay. But then you might hit one, right? Hit your drive into a, a pond and you lose strokes right there. The, the stroke that you may have gained from hitting a really nice wedge, you might lose from three putting from 10 feet, which I did last week. Right? So even though I'm hitting better shots and even though I feel more comfortable with it, my scores haven't really improved very much. Maybe a few shots over the course of, you know, this year, which I would argue isn't really that big a change, but I'm getting better. And this is what happens in a sport like the decathlon. If you understand the context of it, that you can get better without necessarily scoring better because you have to do 10 different things. And this is what happens in golf. You have to hit a variety of different shots. You have to be good at a variety of different things. And I am a terrible fucking putter. Why? Because I had to just don't have enough practice at it. And it's not an easy thing to get out and practice. I can go out, out in a field and hit a hundred wedges, but you have to have a green to practice putting on. And so by not putting, practicing putting, I'm not gaining any real number of strokes on my score. Well, this is exactly what happens to athletes who are getting better at the skills in a decathlon and they don't see it. They don't understand. They might be getting better at the skill part of it, but they have two or three bad events that they can't get over, right? They're maybe getting better at throwing discus, but in the competition they got to, it was rainy and it was wet and they didn't throw what they had been throwing in practice. And so they feel like they're not getting better, that they're not improving. This happens a lot too with people who focus on the skill stuff like discus, javelin, pole vault, hurdles, but they can't run the 400 and the 1500. And so their score really suffers or they're not, you know, they're not big and strong and they're having trouble with shot put or they're jumping, Right. A lot of people have trouble with the jumping events and that's where the most points are. So then somebody who, who isn't necessarily improving is really good at a couple of events and it falsely boosts their score. It doesn't falsely, boost, it, it boosts their score to a way that it makes them look better than somebody who's steadily been improving. 
It's really hard to have that straight line improvement, that, that rising line on the graph in something as complicated as golf or the decathlon. And you have to understand that athletes get very, very frustrated by this. So when you're, when your athlete is getting better at an aspect of it, then you have to, you have to point that out, but you also have to understand and help them understand that this is growth, that this is improvement, even though the overall final score of your decathlon may not have improved. And I've seen any number of young athletes do this. They have three or four fantastic events and three or four shit events. And they think, oh God, I'm terrible but it's better than you were last time. And they say, yeah, but your score isn't better. Well, okay. You had one or two bad things that held you back, but overall you're improving because your skills are getting better. And the skill part of it, if you can improve that, you can always work on the other things. If you can improve your skill events, then you can always then on top of it, improve things like the 1500 and the 400 by working more. So uh, I was, I was, contemplating this in, in my efforts to, to improve my golf game, but also in terms of writing, I've always wanted to be a writer. It's been my lifetime goal and I've never, ever been any good at it. The problem is of course, that I can't stick with it. That, that I don't know if it's other people might say it's ADHD of some sort. I, I prefer to think of it as being, uh, Somebody who can't sit down and focus for long enough, I don't know. But one of the, one of the things that I have problems with is I don't like to do it when it doesn't feel good. And one of my, one of my sort of go-to guys on the internet is a writer named Cory Doctorow, who produces uh, not only books, but essays and articles and huge long threads and on Twitter about everything under the sun. The the guy truly is a a polymath. He's a, he's, he's somebody who, who knows a little bit or a lot about everything it seems that's going on in the world and can speak and write coherently about it. And one of the things he was saying is you can't just write when it feels good. That's not being a writer. And this is the same thing with athletes. You can't just, you can't just do it when you feel like doing it. There are days when it feels like shit. And as coaches, we don't appreciate that enough because we tell people, oh, suck it up and do it. But you have to be on the same side as a person or the athlete. And you have to understand that there's days they don't want to do it. Those are the days you have to be willing to change, willing to mix things up, willing to try something different and make it more interesting or make it more fun because it's not every day. And everybody has days they don't feel like doing it. And what did Cory Doctorow say? He said, I don't give a shit. You write every day, whether you feel like writing or not. And I'm trying it and it's working. I, it, it's really a, a simple, stupid advice. And yet it helps. And one of the simple things he said was quit in the middle. Don't, don't quit when you finish something, quit in the middle. So you have a, a place to pick up. Well, that's always a good way to, to end practice End practice on something positive. And then you've got a positive point to start with the next time and something we try and do. So, you know, in terms of, in terms of practice, we don't always want to practice as a writer. I don't always want to write. And the other thing to avoid is perfectionism. 
this idea that you have to get it right every time, that it has to be perfect the first time. We, we do things over and over and over again for a reason, to get better at them. So in school, I notice this all the time in school when I was a teacher and when my kids were in school, is that when you were given something to write, people only wanted to do it once. They wrote it, they handed it in, they were done. Boom, over with. And it's like, no. Once you've written it, then you have to go back and make it better. It's like, you know, have you ever seen somebody carve something with a chainsaw, right? They, they, they get one of those logs and they start cutting chunks out of it with a chainsaw. It doesn't look like fuck all when they're done with the chainsaw. That's the first draft of anything you've ever written. That's your first attempt at throwing discus. That's your first day pole vaulting. It's taking a chainsaw to a log. It doesn't look like fuck all when you're done. And it's through the polishing process. As you get better at something, you cut smaller and smaller pieces off. You change things a little bit at a time. And it, the, the amount that you change them is a little bit less each time as you get closer and closer to exactly what you want. Well, that's the process of writing. That's the process of getting better at anything. And you have to put in the time and you have to go back and go over it and go over it and go over it. And I've said this before, this is why Damien is the best in the world. He's willing to do that work. He's willing to do the boring shit and do it at full concentration, not full speed because you don't have to do it at full speed. You don't have to knock yourself out doing it. You have to be precise. And he is, when he does drills, he does them exactly the way we want him to do them. And if he does it wrong, he goes back and does it again. And he doesn't mind. He understands that you have to do those things over and over and over and over again. You're just, you're taking little tiny slices away from that log to make it look like the fucking, you know, bald eagle holding a, a salmon in its talons, right? You're doing the fine feather details at this point in his career, but you're still trying to make the picture perfect. And so, you know, I, I, I've always been unwilling to accept failure in myself, always unwilling to accept that it, it's not right. And I get very frustrated. I try and write something that doesn't sound right. I try and write something that doesn't sound right. And I go back and I change the sense, change the sense, change the sense. That's the enemy of progress. Do it and move on. Keep attacking. Go, 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 go. And then go back later and fix it. Don't get stalled trying to do that one thing. And I've seen lots of athletes who do this. They get so frustrated by one thing. This is the beauty of the decathlon. You don't have to just do one thing. If one thing's pissing you off and it's fucking up your day, move on. <laughs> Try something else. And coaches need to be able to do that. You can't just flog a dead horse. There's a time to move on. And often, often, the coach is the only one who can see it. The athletes are too close to it. I needed somebody to say this to me, that, that you have to do it every day, but also that you can't obsess about a single word, a single phrase, a single sentence, that you have to just keep moving forward. And the story writes itself and then you go back and you fix it. You take, you know, you put away your chainsaw and you get out a goddamn chisel. And when the chisel, when you're done with the chisel, then you get out a finer chisel and then you get out a knife and it, right? You're down to the, to, to the little tiny strokes that make something perfect or that might make something perfect. Then you, then you're in a different world. But if you're stuck forever hacking away at things with your chainsaw, it's never going to look like fuck all. 
So to me, for some reason, the MRI sort of put things into context for me, right? It helped me to, to sort of see other things as something clicked a little bit for me. And I thought, okay, now that I understand what's happening, right? In the context of golf, the swing is the important part. Everything else is little stuff. And I was just hacking away for years. I never tried to learn. I never tried to get better. I never tried to practice it. I just went out and played and got pissed off literally every time. And I said this summer, either I'm going to play more and try and get better, or I'm going to quit because this is fucking stupid. So I've tried to play more and I've tried to actually think about it and keep track of what was going on. And my swing has improved. I found a way to hit the ball regularly, smoothly in a way that feels good. And that, right, is the important part. That's the core of golf. The putting part's going to fucking kill me, I know, but that that's the core of it, is to have a swing that works. And now that I'm confident and I'm doing, now fewer and fewer bad shots, right? The whole idea of never hitting two bad shots in a row comes into it then, right? Trying not to get yourself into trouble. And now, now I can practice and move forward knowing that I have a, a plan, a goal, an idea that works. And the same thing now with my writing. Now I'm sitting down every single day and I'm sitting down in the middle of something. I've been leaving myself literally in the middle of sentences and I come in, I'm like, okay, finish the sentence and go, right? Finish the thought. I try and leave myself in the middle of an action sequence. You know, I, I used to study with my grade nine classes, the, the J.R.R. Tolkien book, The Hobbit. And The Hobbit was originally stories that he told his children. And what basically each chapter is, is that <laughs> there's, there's 10 or 15 pages of buildup. And then the last, you know, two to four pages of the chapter, each chapter are action. So everything's building, 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 boom, action. So what I would do with kids who weren't good readers, who weren't particularly interested, is that I would read it out loud to them. This is something I picked up from Dennis. He did this with his classes as well. I would read the first 10 pages of the chapter. And then when we got to the exciting part where things started to happen and, and there were fights and there were orcs and trolls and all sorts of shit happening and swords were out. And then I would stop and say, okay, finish it yourselves. And guess what? They always did. Everybody loves being read to. That's one way to keep kids quiet of any age. But then when you got to the point where they were following along with the story and following along and they said, now read it yourself. Some of them, it took forever to finish, but they did. And that's the same thing when you're writing something. If, if you stop in the middle of the action, you can pick it up again. You're like, okay, yeah, 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 this is what was happening and go from there. And it's a, it's, it's a little trick, but it worked. And so I, I feel like this, this convergence of my golf game and my writing game <laughs> has, has sort of, I don't know, applications outside of my own life, outside of what I'm doing, applications towards what Damien's doing and what Nate's going to be doing this year, because he's at a different point in his career than Damien. He's at a different point in his development. So it, it, it makes me understand, or at least it makes me realize that making sure your athletes have some context rather than being so narrowly focused, they can't see that they're progressing. You need to give them some context as to what is actually happening and how they're progressing because it's never a straight line. There are ups and downs and plateaus all the time. And you have to, you have to, to be able to do this at, at, at 
a top level, you have to be, believe that you're getting better all the time. If you believe that you're not getting better, then you won't. So maybe this is a, I don't know, maybe this is, is confusing to some people and maybe I didn't explain myself clearly, but what I'm saying is that giving your athletes context and understanding, understanding that progress isn't always measurable in numbers is key, I think, to coaching the decathlon. Talk to you next week.